All right, we're at 1 Corinthians 8, and this week we're going to study 1 Corinthians 8, and then next week we are going to start our Easter sermon series. So you have all been given a, uh, a little pack of about 10 cards to hand to folks. If you would hand those out, we would appreciate it very much. We've got a thousand of those cards, and so if each one of us will hand out 10, that'll be a good chunk of that thousand. And then I'm going to keep giving them to you on Wednesday and on Sunday, and we're going to hand them out till we get rid of them. But please help with that, guys. As you go to as you go to the store, as you go to the hairdresser, as you go anywhere, uh, just hand that to people and tell them that you would love for them to join us. And maybe uh, the Lord will draw some folks in here to hear about those questions about Easter, uh, guys. There are people who live within rock throwing distance of this church who who I have personally said to you, who is Jesus. And uh, they don't know, folks. And so these questions on the back of that little card you have are questions that real people have. And they can come in here for real answers from the Word. So please help me in handing those out. All right, turn with me please to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Or turn on your Bible or in your Bible, however you do it. 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as readily offered to an idol, as really offered to an idol, for their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no, no worse off if we do not eat. And no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat offered food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. All right, so if your next door neighbor sacrifices a bull to some idol the next time we have a full moon and offers you some discount meat, you will know what to do after this sermon. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? All right, really, this has more far-reaching usefulness than that. There's wide-ranging application for some of us today, and the, the most relevant area of that is things that we feel some of us think, well, we have the Christian liberty to do this thing or that thing, and others think, no, no, we do not have the Christian liberty to do this thing or that thing. So, at the risk of being tarred and feathered, I'm going to gently bring up one of those things. <laughs> there is disagreement among the people in here on this very point. I know because I have heard both sides. Is it ever 
okay to drink alcohol in any kind or to any measure. There are some people in here that would say, absolutely, it is never okay to drink any alcohol except maybe a NyQuil, okay? (laughs) And then there are other folks in here that say, wait a minute, Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine to help his stomach. And then there are folks that say, look, if you never take a drink of alcohol, you will never become drunk. And that's flawless logical <laughs> logic, right? But then other folks on the other side would say, wait a second. Now, Jesus turned water into wine, so are we really going to call that an evil thing? And then some would say, look, in the Old Testament, we see a good guy like Samson. Samson judged Israel for a number of years. And you know what they said about Samson? That he would not touch wine or alcohol or, or get his hair cut. And he had that Nazarite vow that, that uh, bound him to this. And folks can say, look, that was a good thing. Samson was a virtuous guy, at least most of the time. And then the other side can say, well, if I'm not under a Nazarite vow, and if I were, I wouldn't be allowed to cut my hair. So that doesn't really apply. Then you've got folks that say, look, Proverbs 20 says wine is a mocker and beer is a, I don't know, it leads you into foolishness. It says that kind of thing. And then somebody else would say, well, okay, wine is a mocker if you get drunk. The Bible says don't be drunk. So, you can see what I'm saying. There are both sides represented in here today on whether or not it is ever okay to consume alcohol. But the thing we we have to agree on is what the Bible clearly states, which is do not become drunk with wine, right? So, another area where we ought to agree is 1 Corinthians 8. The folks that never, ever, ever say it's ever okay to touch alcohol, they need to point to 1 Corinthians 8 and say, see, if you drink alcohol, you might could make a brother stumble. And the folks that think we have the liberty to occasionally drink small amounts of alcohol so that we don't become drunk should look at 1 Corinthians 8 and say, you know what this says? This says that I should limit my personal freedom based on my love for my brothers and sisters. So, this is something that we can see as applicable to us today, but we have one governing rule that is is over everything else, and that is that we love the brothers and sisters enough to never do anything to help them defile their conscience, as we'll see in just a moment. What else might fall into this category of things to consider? Well, sometimes folks will tell you, you can never, ever go to an R-rated movie. It's bad for your witness. It's bad for your soul. Don't ever do it. And there are other folks that say, well, um, I, I can do that because it's not going to influence me poorly. Um, it's, it's a freedom that I have in Christ. Uh, dancing is another thing. Now, uh, our president, J.D. Greer, said when he was a youngster going to uh, a Southern Baptist church, They told him, we don't want you to have premarital sex because that could lead to dancing, (laughs) right? Okay, so dancing is this horrible thing. You don't want to do it. So we realize that there are differences of opinion among among uh, well-believing, good-hearted Christians on what things are a matter of liberty and what things are not, right? Now, I hope I did that without getting anybody mad at me. Okay, (laughs) now there are other examples of things and it's just anything that you think you have the freedom to do but that some other brothers and sisters don't think that believers have the freedom to do any of that um, it falls under this category that we should consider today so let's see how Paul tells us to handle this stuff our first point is that knowledge is good 
Love is better, but knowledge and love are the best. That's what we need to have. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So Paul is responding again, I'll remind you, to a letter that the Corinthians wrote to him. And they asked him in that letter some questions that we're just hearing one side of the conversation. So when Paul answers something kind of out of the blue and he's saying, we all have knowledge, well, he is most likely responding to a question that they had because some of these Corinthians were saying, look, an idol is not a thing. An idol is a piece of wood or a piece of metal. So if somebody offers a, a sacrifice to this idol that really is nothing, and then they, give some, they sell some discounted meat, I need to get in on that because the idol doesn't really mean anything and I'm going to be a better uh, steward of my money if I buy this meat. And some other Corinthians were saying, oh man, we should not have anything to do with this meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. This is messed up. And so Paul is trying to settle this kind of dispute for him. And he says, look, knowledge without love breeds arrogance. That's the problem here. It breeds arrogance and it brings pride. Now he says that knowledge is, he said this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But he's not anti-knowledge. You know, there are people um, in some circles that I, I am in and that I listen to preach who have what I consider a, a very excellent understanding of God's sovereignty. And I think the most biblical understanding of how faith and salvation are gifts from God and they're not things that we can earn or deserve. But you know what? Some of those folks that travel in those circles are really proud of the fact that they understand this thing really well, which makes no sense at all because what they're saying is, I think that faith is a gift of God. I think that, uh, you know, if it weren't for grace, I would be lost. But I am proud of the fact that I understand that better than somebody else understands that. That's silliness because the, the rude acknowledgement is that all these good things come from God, right? So, knowledge without love just breeds arrogance. Knowledge of God and His Word are wonderful things that we should strive for. Um, and it's not that we don't want knowledge. We want to know God. We want to know God's heart, God's mind as best we can so that we can serve Him as best we can. Let me read to you a quote by Dr. R.C. Sproul. Uh, he said, The Word of God can be in the mind without being in the heart, but it cannot be in the heart without first being in the mind. Right? We understand what he means there. He's saying that, look, you can have a lot of knowledge that has not penetrated to your heart, that has not changed the way you live and the way you treat other people, but the truth of God cannot be in your heart unless it first is in your mind. So we do have to study, we have to hear good sermons, we have to read the Word so that we can understand what God wants, and then we have to have the love for God and the love for one another that that penetrates to our heart. If knowledge is in the mind and not the heart, the result is pride. If it's in the mind and the heart, the result is increased obedience, faithfulness, and love. So knowledge is good, love is better, but knowledge and love are the best. The next thing we see here is that 
he affirms that there is only one God, and I think we all know that. But because it is written here and explained, we're going to talk about it for a moment. Verse 4 says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he's not saying that there aren't pagan gods. He's saying, yeah, there are pagan gods, but really there's one God, and we understand that. Now, let me ask you, what does God think about idols? Um, God has a sense of humor, I am am positive, because of the way he treats this subject in Isaiah 44, starting in verse 14. He says, he cuts down cedars, and he's talking about man. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the other half, over the half he eats, a, eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. He falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, no one is there, uh, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? So the prophet is saying, How dumb can you be to take a piece of firewood and say, I'm going to cut half of this up and burn it and roast some food on it. But the other half, I'm going to make it to a God and I'm going to fall down before it and say, you're my God, deliver me. I mean, he knows he just made it, right? He just carved that piece of wood. And yet the mind is so deluded that he worships that idol. I think it's clear that God thinks men who worship idols are fools who are blind and deluded. Now, guys, God is totally different from every creature. You know, there's no actual contest of strength between God and Satan, and we're wondering who's going to win, okay? That is not, that's not a real thing. There's not a dichotomy there where we have roughly equal powers. You know, during the Cold War, uh, Russia was trying to, the Soviet Union was trying to build up their arms so that they could be as strong as the United States. And the United States was doing the same thing so that we could make sure that there were roughly equal powers so that we didn't destroy one another. Well, God and Satan are not in that category. God is totally other than every created creature. And if God were wanting to destroy Satan today, he could do so with a thought or with a word, and Satan would be no longer in existence. If he wanted to cast him into hell today, he could do that. Now, he doesn't do that because his sovereign will is to, is to work this thing out the way that he is, has said in the word that it would work out. 
So there's no real contest there. God is the one and only. Verse 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Guys, if he didn't exist, then nothing would exist. Your next breath and your next heartbeat are given by this sovereign God. So we can worship God, considering who he is, we can choose, are we going to worship God, or we can worship ourselves, or money, or toys, or you know, other people, but they seem like really, really lame substitutes for worshiping God when you see who God actually is, right? And so Paul is saying, look, I get it, I understand, and you understand, some of you understand, that an idol is nothing. There's nothing there but a piece of wood or a piece of metal. But some people don't have that same knowledge, and it will um, go against their conscience if they eat this meat sacrificed to idols. Now Paul tells us we are to surrender our rights rather than sin against our brother and against Christ. Verse 7, he says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That's the main point, guys. Verse 9 says, but take care that this right of yours... He doesn't deny the right. He says, take care that this right of yours does not become somehow a stumbling block for the weak. And here's why. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This continues the theme that we can see throughout the New Testament of giving preference to one another and submitting to one another. Guys, we're supposed to look out for number one, but number one is supposed to not be me, it's supposed to be you. And so what I'm called to do as a Christian and as a brother in Christ is to see you as more valuable than me and to treat you that way. And that's why submission can work wonderfully among brothers and sisters. That's why we are supposed to prefer the other person because we don't want to sin against them and by extension sin against Christ our Lord. Now let me tell you, you should never violate your own conscience and try to never entice anyone else to violate theirs. Um, There are certain things that I think, and I'm by far not a moral relativist, okay? Let, Let me tell you what moral relativism is. That's me saying, hey, this thing is okay for me but it's not okay for you if you don't feel like it's okay for you. Okay, that's saying I just want to judge everything by my feelings rather than any objective understanding of what's right and wrong. And I am the furthest thing from a moral relativist. But when it comes to a matter of conscience, you need to make sure you don't violate your conscience and somebody else cannot violate their conscience 
And so you may have, you may legitimately have a freedom that they do not have because it goes against their conscience, okay? So never do anything that violates your conscience. Uh, There was a friend of mine who was leading a choir, and let me tell you what happened. They were in Germany on a choir tour, and um, one of his students was there as well, and uh, they were both Christians, okay? Now, I have never been to Germany, but my understanding of it is uh, you have water and you have alcoholic beverages, okay? (laughs) Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that the best way to study the Bible was alone with a stein of beer in hand and, you know, in your study. Uh, So Germans are a little different kind of of folks than we are. They enjoy their, their drink. So they were in Germany, and what happened was they were eating dinner, and the Christian guy who was the leader of this organization had something with a little bit of alcohol in it. The student was freaked out by that. I mean, he was so upset. He was just sitting there going, oh, oh, you know, just making, going kind of crazy about it because he couldn't believe that this Christian brother was ruining his witness by drinking alcohol. Now, did the guy leading the group have the freedom as a believer to drink alcohol? I'm not going to touch that. I'll let you decide, okay? I'll let you decide that. But was the guy who was making a scene about it in the right? I think we can pretty clearly say that he was not right to have done that. Could the whole incident have been avoided? Yes, it could have. How could it have been avoided? Well, the guy leading the group could have given up what he considered to be his freedom for the sake of the other brother, And the other brother could not have tried to impose his conscience on the leader, right? And if either either of those things had happened, then there wouldn't have been this bizarre scene where non-Christians in the group were going, man, both of these dudes are weird, you know? (laughs) Because as it turned out, it just wasn't a good, good testimony, right? So what's the point? The point is to defer to one another. Let love for each other be the prevailing factor in whether or not something is of freedom for you. All right, now what about adultery, okay? Do we we not want to impose our conscience on a brother who's committing adultery? Well, that's, that's completely different because Paul's example is about a situation in which well-meaning brothers can reasonably disagree. Uh, There is one more thought that I want us to consider here in this passage. And it comes back in verse 12. He says, Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now how is it that if you offend your brother's conscience, you are actually sinning against Christ? How do you think Paul made that leap? Well, in Matthew 25, starting in verse 44, It reads, Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So Jesus identifies with believers. And he says, Look, if if you are offending a believer and not taking care to not wound their conscience, then really you are sinning against that believer, but you're also sinning against the Lord. And Paul knew this sort of from very personal (laughs) first-hand experience because when Paul was on the road to Damascus, we read this in Acts chapter 9 and verse 3. 
Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting them? He said, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So guys, we need to be careful to look out for our brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus takes this very personally. If you are wounding their conscience, then by, by definition here, you are uh, sinning against the Lord Jesus. That's a very sobering thought in my mind, right? We don't want to do that. So, you know, when Cain, um, after Cain killed Abel, God said to him, hey, where, you know, where's your brother? And what did Cain say? He said, am I my brother's keeper? Well, we who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we can ask that question, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, we are. We are to take care of our brother and sister. Now, if we think we have a vaulted understanding of something that gives us a freedom that they don't understand, okay, that's possible. But the bottom line is, let's make sure that the way we act doesn't lead somebody else to violate their conscience or lead somebody else into sin because that's just a greater concern. We have freedom in Christ to do certain things. We have prohibitions from Christ to do other things. But the bottom line is we need to consider how that's going to affect our brother and sister who might not have the same exact understanding that we do. So what do we do about this? The bottom line is you enjoy your freedom in Christ, but temper it when necessary for the sake of your brothers and sisters. That way we can all get along wonderfully. And if some, I know, like I said at the start, I know some of you are saying, hey, I have the right to uh, occasionally in moderation drink alcohol. And some of us in here are saying, nope, no Christian ever has the right to do that. I understand that both opinions are represented here. But what we have to agree on is what 1 Corinthians 8 says. And that says that we are not to wound the conscience of another brother or sister by exercising what we see as our freedom. So you see, love is the bottom line. Love is the standard by which we measure whether this thing is okay to do or not. Um, I have heard really, really restrictive people tell me things that were wrong. Uh, for instance, this one lady told me, um, <laughs> uh, she said, I don't wear jeans because I don't want to cause you to lust. <laughs> and I thought, well, thank you. Uh, it wasn't necessary, I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, but, you know, she was trying to be nice, right? And, and it was a weird thing to tell me, but, but she said that. Now, the same lady told me, I don't listen to contemporary Christian music. Contemporary Christian music is really bad because the beat of the drums makes you want to fight or have sex. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, never have I heard Stephen Curtis Chapman and wanted to you know, punch somebody or, or get me in the mood for anything else. It's just bizarre. Some of the fences that we build around the law. You know, the Pharisees were criticized because Jesus said, look, you're not observing the law. You're building a fence around the law and then making that like the law. We don't want to do that. But some Christians, meaning well, say, look, if I build a fence around the law, 
and then I don't cross that fence, then I won't get anywhere near violating the law, right? And that, that makes sense. So, again, the bottom line is you may not agree with all your brothers and sisters, but love them enough that you don't discourage them. Now, why would we, uh, why would we be so gracious as people? We would be so gracious because we have been the recipient of tremendous grace. Let me tell you what the gospel is. The gospel is that we have all sinned against God. You know, some of us may think we know a little bit more than others. Some of us may think we're a little better than others. But still, guys, we're, we're all like, uh, you know, a, if you saw some cockroaches and one of them thought was a little bit smarter than the other one, you wouldn't be real impressed, right? If one of them was a little bit more moral than the other one, you wouldn't be real impressed. And so we're all sinners. We're all, we're all that rebellious people before we know Christ. And so some of us think we're pretty good. Some of us know we're real bad. But wherever you are there, let me tell you, everybody has sinned. And one sin is, is an act of rebellion against God. And God, being the faithful and righteous one that he is, has to punish sin. So we're all in the guilty camp. Now, that's a problem for us because we can't fix it. You know, once we do something to, to be imperfect, we can't then become perfect again. If, uh, if you have a beautiful white wedding gown and you take some ink and you flick it on the, on the dress, it may be mostly white, but it's still it's messed up now, right? Because it's got speckles of black ink all over it. You can't take that away. You can't remove sin by behaving the rest of the time. So we needed a Savior. We couldn't do anything about our situation. So what the Lord did was he sent his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect and righteous life for us. You know, he didn't just come and die for us. He lived for us as well. He lived that perfect, holy, righteous life so that by faith we could exchange our sinfulness for his righteousness. And guys, if you've never done that, you want to do that today because someday judgment is coming. Now, it may be when the Lord returns. It may be when you go to see Him, okay? Um, None of us is promised tomorrow. None of us is promised 10 seconds from now. So if you aren't positive that you are in a relationship with Christ where you have by faith done that swap that I talked about, taking your sin and put it on Jesus who paid for it on the cross and taking Christ's righteousness and put it on your account, don't, don't leave here today without doing that. There's just no reason to do that. You don't want uh, to continue under the wrath and judgment of God. That is the scariest place you can possibly be. So we're going to sing in a moment, and we're going to have a moment of invitation. And what we're going to do is, if you are here and you're not 100% sure that you are a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, come and talk to me. If you would like to join this church because you say, hey, I want to get together with these people, work side by side with them, and try to, uh, to spread the kingdom through this home office right here of West Laurel Baptist. If you want to join with us, you come and do that. Also, if you have a prayer request and you say, hey, I just want you to pray with me and for me, it would be my honor to do that. So let's stand and we're going to sing together.